Hi, everyone. This week, we're going to talk more about cougars. I have cougars on the brain, but we're going to talk about them more in the context of apex predators. So last week, I talked about eastern cougars here in the United States and that there are no more breeding populations of them. So they've been extirpated from the area, which is which essentially means locally extinct. And they are one of the apex predators that lived in the eastern United States. So cougars and wolves were the two apex predators that are now gone from our ecosystem. Interestingly enough, we had elections here in the United States. And on the Colorado ballot was a proposition to restore gray wolves to the state of Colorado. So they um, have also had gray wolves be extirpated from their state. Gray wolves were extirpated from most of the range in the lower United States, in the lower 48 states, and they are trying to reintroduce them. Now this election results. It looks like it's going to pass, but I checked some news stories and it might not because they're still reporting results. I'm looking today on Friday, November 6, and it says from the Associated Press, 90% reporting and 50.5% voted yes to restore them with 49.5% restore saying no. So this is a very co- close election for this ballot. And today I was already planning to talk about the loss of cougars from the eastern United States, but also with the loss of gray wolves, our apex predators, on the effects that we have now from the ecosystem. And I wanted to talk to you about a study I did a couple of years ago to see if other animals can substitute as these apex predators. So today we're going to go into details about apex predators, what they are, the importance that they have, and how our ecosystems have changed, at least here in the United States, from the loss of them, although a lot of this stuff will apply to other areas of the world. And at the end, talk about living alongside some of these apex predators and why they're so controversial and what we can do as as citizens to to help express the importance of these animals you'll find out they're very important and communicate with other people that um, we need to live alongside them and and we need them in our ecosystems. So um, perfect timing of this this wolf ballot and um, I'm really excited to talk to you guys today about this this cool study I did. The results are were surprising to us honestly. So so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started.
Okay, so let's start with the basics. First of all, uh, what is a predator? A predator is an animal that is carnivorous. This means that it eats meat, means that it kills other animals, although a lot of them are not exclusively carnivorous, even apex predators. Apex predators are, are animals that do this, but they're at the top of the food chain. So they don't really have any other animals or they don't have any other animals eating them, preying upon them. But they're not safe from being killed. There's a lot of ways that apex predators can still get killed, um, excluding humans. There's there's, um, competition between species and also competition within species as well. So they're not completely safe from like I said, from being killed, but they do not have any animals above them preying upon them. So these guys are roaming the ecosystem that they live in, and they are hunting to eat for the most part. There are some apex predators, like I said, that are not exclusively carnivorous. For example, grizzly bears are considered apex predators, and they do eat vegetation and berries. But Overall, these are animals that eat, they eat meat. So if you are a prey in the ecosystem, you are constantly looking out for predators because you don't want to die. Examples of apex predators are therefore the big cats like tigers, lions, jaguars. I mentioned grizzly bears, uh, polar bears. And then um, what we're going to talk about today, wolves and, of course, cougars. In the ocean, um, sharks are a really great example, especially great white sharks. Um, Not all sharks are apex predators, but um, great white sharks are a really great example of an ocean ocean (laughs) apex predator. In terms of the effects of apex predators on the ecosystem, they are huge. And normally when people think about the effects, they think about just the loss of prey animals from the ecosystem. So they just think about predators directly hunting and killing animals like deer like boar and removing individuals from the population therefore people talk about apex predators in the sense that they control um, prey populations here in the united states especially the eastern united states we have an abundance of white-tailed deer and one of the reasons is because we no longer have those apex predators and a People argue that hunting can replace the cougars. When I say cougars, I also mean mountain lions and pumas are all the same animal and uh, gray wolves that we lost. And I'll get into that a little bit later. But what most people fail to recognize is that apex predators have immense impacts on prey populations even if they don't directly kill individuals. Just the presence of a predator in an ecosystem is enough to change prey individuals, to change their behaviors. And a really classic example of this is in Yellowstone National Park with the reintroduction 
of gray wolves. So they had not been there for decades. And as a result, the elk in the park were less fearful. They were able to go um, wherever they wanted uh, for the most part. They did have uh, uh, predators still like cougar and grizzly bears, but the gray wolf was really their their main predator. So when the gray wolves were reintroduced, they were taken from another population and um, transferred to the park and released into the park. The elk then started to change their behavior. They changed, um, scientists have found that they've changed their habitat use, their movement patterns, their group sizes, their vigilance, and among other traits. And this can be summarized in the phrase, the landscape of fear. Basically what this means is that the prey species is thinking about and trying to anticipate where the predator species is going to be based on their knowledge about this species. So before, when they didn't have the predator, when they didn't have the the gray wolf, the elk could more freely roam around the park and um, eat whatever vegetation they wanted. But with the wolves added back into the park, the wolves tended to be in certain habitats or or the elk were more vulnerable in certain habitats. Perhaps they didn't have as much um, sight or um, they, like I said, knew that wolves were in that habitat or tended to be in that preferred habitat. So they had to change their their strategies, their anti-predator defense strategies so that that they could survive. They no longer had this free reign around the park to eat whatever they wanted. Therefore, certain areas that included vegetation that they were eating, um, that was accessible to the elk then became inaccessible or difficult for the elk to consume. In other words, the elk weren't willing to take the risk to eat the the forage they they maybe really wanted to eat, the vegetation they really wanted to eat because the risk of predation was too high. So the population then therefore changed all those different behaviors, like I said, because of this this landscape of fear with wolves now reintroduced to the system. And because the presence of wolves changed elk behavior, changed their feeding behavior, this changed the vegetation structure of Yellowstone National Park and had cascading effects on the rest of the ecosystem. The feeding pressure off of certain plant species, those plant species could now grow back and those had cascading effects on other species as well. So the beaver population has a bounce back in Yellowstone. And um, there's this this famous YouTube video called Wolves Change Rivers, which I actually uh, didn't know about until recently. I'm not, even though I have my own YouTube channel, I'm terrible at watching YouTube videos. I just, I just never tend to watch them. But um, this summarizes the, the cascading effects that uh, Yellowstone 
or the wolves in Yellowstone have. Some scientists argue that is an oversimplification, um, but nonetheless, the wolves have definitely altered the landscape of Yellowstone through their their top-down effects on the elk herd. So this is pretty huge because you you might not think about, at least I didn't think about this before I did a study on this, but you don't really think about animals like being constantly fearful, I guess, because as human beings, we don't have any, any predators or in most places where we live, we don't have to worry about this. And in a lot of places, we have an abundance of food too. But prey animals, they have to make these really careful decisions between eating and looking out for predators because if they if they choose the wrong thing they can die either way if they're not getting enough food because they are looking for predators too much then they won't be able to survive so it is this this constant trade-off and it's especially important to think about when they're reproducing because the females not only have to think about themselves for foraging, but also their offspring as well. So these are really difficult decisions that animals have, and the predators therefore have a, a huge impact on the way different prey species react. They're simply not just killing individuals from the population, but they're changing their behavior. There's been studies that show that even without direct predation on the population and in laboratory studies, that this can this effect, this landscape of fear, can still reduce growth rates and reproduction because it is so strong. Um, just the presence of predators can reduce feeding, which therefore affects how many offspring individuals can produce. Okay, so bringing it back here to the eastern United States, we have lost our apex predators, our mountain lions, our gray wolves. So essentially, there is really nothing preying upon white-tailed deer, our, our largest prey species here. So one of the things that we were wondering in my lab and that this study I conducted is about is if um, humans, for one, could replace wolves and cougars as apex predators. Now humans, hunters we're talking about, people who hunt, they have the impact of being apex predator in terms of removing individuals from the population. But what hasn't been shown is if they have or hasn't been shown across a large scale that if humans are able to exert these these anti-predator effects these behavioral effects on on deer that would cause them to behave differently and this is important on our ecosystem we need to think about this because as I mentioned before, although hunters remove deer from the population, if the deer aren't experiencing these behavioral effects, 
it still might not influence the ecosystem that much because they're not really changing their behaviors about where they forage, the types of vegetation that they forage, and it still might be causing the same uh, damage and destruction in the ecosystem. And if you think about how humans hunt, it is different to the way cougars and and wolves prey upon deer. People hunt often from tree stands, and I am not a hunter, so I apologize if I sound ignorant on this subject. But from my understanding, people mostly hunt from tree stands and I don't think that people choose specific habitats and deer might not be able to pick up on the different cues. They might not be consistent cues that are associated with with losing an individual, with death. All of a sudden, a deer here is a gunshot from a tree stand and it is dead. Whereas other animals like cougars and wolves, they leave certain cues that deer are able to pick up on or that they have certain habitat preferences that make different areas of a forest more risky. So this is what we wanted to see. We wanted to see if deer could pick up on cues from humans and if humans could have this sort of landscape of fear on deer population. Now this has been shown in some individual studies, but the thing that that made our study really different is we looked across a really large landscape. So we did this um, using citizen science. I mentioned this study before um, and I analyzed uh, data from, from this larger study, but basically the study was set up to look at the impacts of hunting and recreation on animals in the eastern United States. So we had camera traps set up in thousands of locations across 33 parks in six states in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. And we worked with volunteers who set the camera traps on trail and off trail um, to be able to compare those, those different data sets. And capturing any pictures of animals and humans that that cross the camera's path. So these were done in parks. They were paired with parks that allowed hunting and didn't allow hunting. Um, so they were state parks, game parks, wild areas, things like that. So in the landscape, you have a mix of people hiking trails just for fun. You have different hunting seasons where people are hunting deer. This is this is the deer's perspective. This is what they have to think about when they're navigating through the area. In addition to that, some people also think that it's possible that coyotes could act as apex predators replacing um, wolves specifically because they're both canid species and being new apex predators for deer. So here in the east, coyotes are a new species. I live in North Carolina and they've only been here for about 30 years. So the extirpation of gray wolves from the ecosystem is part of the reason that they've been allowed to flourish in this area. Because although gray wolves don't kill coyotes for consumption, they're not really doing it 
as a, a prey species, they're doing it more for competition. They, they will kill coyotes. And also just that, that fear of having those predators in the area has that influence on coyotes as well. It, it, it can impact their um, reproduction. It can impact their foraging. So this competition also has an impact on other animals, um, not just the prey species. So let's take a moment to talk about the differences between coyotes and wolves. They look very similar. Uh, at first, I, I even had a hard time telling them apart in camera trap photos, but um, now I'm really good at it. But um, wolves are a lot bigger than coyotes. Coyotes aren't actually that big. The, the biggest ones weigh about 40 pounds. Wolves are more social than coyotes. Um, from our camera trap research, we have not seen a lot of pack formation in coyotes. They are monogamous and, and pair off with another individual. And they do have young and, and raise them together. But from our camera trap research, it seems like most of the time when coyotes were in groups, it was because they were in young and they tended to be more solitary. Now, they still might be part of groups, but they're more spaced out, but they're not as much um, pack hunting animals as gray wolves are. Now, lots of people think that coyotes are predators of deer and they are, they definitely are, but by far and large, they mostly prey upon fawns. So they will find young fawns in the forest when their mother's away and prey upon them, or even if the mother is there. Coyotes, to the best of our knowledge, do not prey upon adult deer. I searched the literature very thoroughly for this because of this paper or this study I was doing. And I could only find a couple of documented cases by scientists where coyotes had pack formation, were chasing deer, um, and consuming adult deer. Um, so this is, and it's, it's also very difficult to study. And a lot of people, or a lot of studies will show that coyotes have deer in their scat. But again, these could be fawns and roadkill is huge too. So these could be coyotes scavenging on roadkill and not them actually killing the deer. I actually want to do a full episode on this, on the impacts of coyotes on deer, because there's a lot of misinformation out there on how coyote populations impact white-tailed deer, but I think that might be next episode or one coming soon. So we wanted to know if coyotes, given they're smaller size than wolves and that they're not as pack-forming and social as wolves, would still be a threat to, to deer. Would they still perceive them as an apex predator, as a threat to their lives. So how we studied this is we we had all that camera trap data from, from the study and we looked at individual deer photos. So I, along with 
um, interns in our lab, we literally looked at thousands and thousands of deer photos and we scored them if they were heads up or heads down or heads neutral. So we literally looked at pictures of the deer and the camera trap takes these bursts and we looked at individual photos and would score them. And this heads up, heads down behavior is an indication of what we call vigilance. So vigilance is essentially how much the animal is paying attention to the environment, scanning the environment for predators. So if you think about, if you know, meerkats, they actually usually have one individual that is remains vigilant while the other ones are foraging. And then if there is a predator, they'll make a specific call to telling everyone to duck for cover. So for, for ungulates, hooved mammals, they are going through the forest, they're thinking about eating, they're thinking about predators. And like I said, it's a trade-off. So if there are no predators in the ecosystem, if they have nothing to worry about, they're not going to really be vigilant. There's nothing to worry about, so they don't really need to to pay attention that much. So they can go ahead and forage and just eat and get fat. And that's that's what's important for them and for reproduction. But if there are predators about, then of course they have to be a bit vigilant. They're gonna have to be a lot more careful going through the forest. And therefore with predation um, being high or high risk areas, we would uh, expect then a deer to have their heads up in, or be more vigilant and, and be in a more heads up position more frequently. So we looked at all these deer photos across these six states. We scored them. And then because we had camera traps, we also had the the number of people who were on the camera trap. So we had a measure of um, hiking. We had a measure of hunting because we knew, like I said, how many people were on the camera traps and we could score what they were doing. These cameras were set on trail and although people do go off trail, for the most part they stay on trail. So this is a good indicator of how much activity is we're in those protected areas. And then of course we have coyote activities. These cameras trigger when any animal walks by. So we have the number of coyote detections that we can use. And we had a we had an average of how many coyotes were seen per day on the different camera traps. I should also mention that if we had photos where deer looked at the camera trap, we stopped scoring after that happened. Or if deer looked at the camera trap the whole time, we didn't include those photos because we didn't want the camera trap to bias the photos. So potentially the deer could look at the camera trap and see it as a foreign object and be scared. And then afterward bias its behavior being more heads up. So we did exclude those photos. And then basically we, we ran um, models using all of these data. So we looked at the impacts of coyotes, the impacts of um, hunting on deer vigilance. And then we also included some other effects as well. So season for the fall, we included sex, so male or female, because you can confidently tell sex then the and also 
the detection rate of domestic dogs, light level, things like that we included to look at the impact of um to see if these these guys, if humans, these guys, to see if humans and coyotes are apex predators. So what did we find? We got some pretty strange results because like I said, other studies have shown that deer are more vigilant during a hunting season, but ours were pretty crazy. We had a lot of data. So we had um, on average about 100 deer per site. And we definitely had variation in coyotes as well. Some sites had higher coyote detections. Some sites had fewer. Um, some sites had no coyote detection. So we had a lot of variation. But basically, we found, um, I'll go over coyotes first. So coyotes had no significant impact on on deer vigilance at all. And deer, deer at sites that had hunting, they actually had increased vigilance and it was weak, but the crazy thing is that it was outside of hunting season in the spring. And vigilance was actually significantly lower in the hunted areas, which again is crazy and not what we would expect. Some other results we found is that actually the most important factors were light, that the deer were less vigilant on dark nights, which makes sense, and hiking. This results also also makes sense, that deer were less vigilant, so they were not raising their head as much at heavily hiked parks. So this hiked parks. So this suggests that uh, the deer were habituated to the human presence. And I see this a lot when I walk my dogs here in Raleigh on the Greenway. I live really close to the Greenway. And these deer, oh my God, they are so habituated to the people. I see them on nearly a daily basis now. And my dogs are not a threat. They are barking like crazy at them. Sometimes they're quite literally just meters away from us. And just, they do watch us. They are vigilant. But they're... Like I said, they're not scared, they're not moving, and they're just present in the area. So that's one of the things that we found from this study, and that's a that's an expected result. That's not um, super shocking at all. So what this means collectively is there's two interpretations, but it does seem this is this is the main interpretation that we came to that deer do not perceive humans and coyotes as dangerous predators. Um, however, it's, it also is possible that we are measuring the wrong thing, that vigilance um, might not be the way that deer express their anti-predator behaviors in this scenario, but vigilance does work for other ungulates. So um, we don't think that's as likely, but we think instead rather that that deer do not associate them with being apex predators. If we really want to restore our ecosystem, hunting alone just isn't going to do it. Yes, it removes individuals from the population, but our research shows that it doesn't exert these 
anti-predator effects from deer towards humans. So really to get these behavioral changes that are so influential on the ecosystem that make such huge changes, we really need to reintroduce apex predators like Krugers, like gray wolves. And this is exactly what Colorado is doing with a gray wolf. Now they do have cougars there already, um, but like I said, some prey species act differently to different predators and they are hopefully going to restore gray wolves to the ecosystem. Now reintroducing apex predators to the ecosystem sounds easy, but it's not. And as evidenced from the very close race to restore gray wolves in Colorado, it's unfortunately a contentious issue. I can link to a podcast all about gray wolves, but the gray wolf situation in Yellowstone, yes, it has been a success story, but it also came with a lot of challenges in terms of working with the local community. People fear predators And although the wolves were released into the national park, they, of course, don't know park boundaries and therefore visit private land. People have this fear that wolves are a threat to our safety, which they're not. If you listen to the Mountain Lion podcast, you do not have to be afraid of these predators their chances of attacking you are extremely extremely low they just don't do this if they do it's probably you're too close by accident um, for some reason but there's so many movies and tv shows that show people around a campfire and wolves showing up that does not happen it doesn't happen and yes they do Uh, prey upon and take livestock once in a while, but it is not to the extent that people believe it to be. And there are programs in place to to help um, farmers to be able to live alongside wolves. So I am very hopeful for us to be able to restore apex predators to different ecosystems, but this requires a lot of work on our behalf. So as I mentioned before, and and some of at least some of my podcast episodes, but one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast and switch to science communication is that because so many of these these species that are of conservation concern, yes, they require scientific study and scientific research, but so much of the outcome really depends on us and our ability to tolerate these species, our ability to live alongside these species. A really good example of this, or it's a bad example, it's a, it's a good example in terms that it demonstrates this, but it's a bad example in terms of the outcome for endangered species is the restoration of red wolves here in North Carolina. And that's a whole nother um, topic if they're different species or not. But essentially there's only like 40 gray wolves wild in North Carolina. And it's been really hard to grow that population because there is not a tolerant attitude from locals towards these red wolves. They get shot. um, They're not welcome on people's land. And a lot of this is 
from culture. A lot of it is from misinformation, misconceptions, like I mentioned before. And the gray wolves, and I'm sure the red wolves too, it also represents government intervention. And honestly, that's why I think a lot of people don't tolerate these endangered species because they are then forced to make changes in their land potentially that affect their lives and they don't want any government intervention. So it's a really um, deep, complex issue. It's not just only about the animals. It's about um, a lot of different things in our lives. But I am hopeful that maybe one day we can restore apex predators to the east. I think that would be awesome. Um, Let me know your thoughts on this topic, but I definitely think that it would help some of the deer problems that we have here in the eastern United States. Although, now that I said that, that itself is a complex issue because the deer here in the U.S. where we're really having problems is cities and apex predators, larger mammals, are more sensitive to urbanization. So it's unlikely that we would have wolves and cougars moving into the suburbs, but I don't know. We can think about this, and and potentially these species can evolve, adapt to more urban life. Something to think about, but I personally would love to have wolves here in the east let me know your thoughts what do you think about this topic would you want wolves and cougars living in your neighborhood or close to your neighborhood before i go i want to mention that i have some really cool stuff coming up for the rest of the year i am creating a deep dive into wildlife biology careers workshops. This is going to be a one-day workshop, several hours long. And basically, I'm taking a chunk of my Confusion to Clarity course that I ran over the summer, and I'm separating this part into a workshop. And this is going to be more of a technical program, a technical area of focus. And the rest of my Confusion to Clarity source, I'm going to relaunch it next year. It's going to be new. It's going to be improved. It's going to be awesome. So if you're not on my email list, make sure you get on the email list because that's how you'll find out about the workshop. Um, You can also sign up. I should have a page up soon, very soon. My website actually crashed yesterday, but it's all good. And you can sign up there to receive email alerts about it. But if you've read my book, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology, you will know that I go over the six different major career types and seven major different career workplaces in this field and why it is so important to know the career type and workplace as best as you can before you get started or before you really finish your degree so that you can get the experiences and skills that you really need to be able to get this yourself the job that you want. It's just all so niche nowadays and you really can't just trust for a single degree to to be able to cover all these different types of jobs. That was my big takeaway from being on the job market. 
So this, I am, it's going to be similar in the book in that we go over the different career types and workplaces, but we're gonna take a much deeper dive. And for a lot of these types and a lot of these workplaces, I have worked at those places. So I'm gonna tell you what it's like to be in these positions. I'm also gonna give you real life examples of people who work in these positions. So you can look at them up, you can look at their, their backgrounds and then um, also potentially contact them if you wanna start networking with them. So it should be really fun. I'm super excited about it and that will happen this December. So I hope you guys can make it. Thank you so much for listening. I'm really grateful for you. If you love this podcast, I would just be so happy if you could share it, write a review, because this really helps people find it. And my whole mission is to get people excited about nature, excited about wildlife, inspired to conserve it. And the more that we can connect people to nature in any way, and try to reduce this fear around certain species. So today, you know, we talked about the apex predators. I have episodes on snakes and bats and let's just get people, like I said, more excited about nature. So if you could share this or rate it, review it, I would be oh so grateful because that helps people find it. And I'm not doing ads because I wanna keep it all about content. Um, So, I would love that from you guys. Thank you so much. And I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to each other. Be kind to animals always.